According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 40, which is uh, fairly long, actually. It starts on one page, and I flip, and I got two pages there, and I got to flip again. It's a long chapter, 31 verses. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. We have a major division between chapter 39 and chapter 40. There's a shift in tone. There's a shift in emphasis. There is, uh, uh, whereas maybe the first 39 chapters were more of wrath and judgment, there'll be some of that in the later chapters. But really, starting in chapter 40 and moving on, we now have the message of double comfort. And it begins with comfort, O comfort. And the message of double comfort is so startling and so different that it actually caused some uh, skeptics and Bible uh, skeptics and God-haters from a couple of centuries ago began to imagine and pretend that maybe there must be uh, more than one author to this book. And maybe there must be now a Deutero-Isaiah or a Trito-Isaiah and all the rest. So, of course, we reject all that and, and discuss that in the introduction to this book study. There's one Isaiah. Jesus quoted from all the portions of, of Isaiah and attributed all of them to Isaiah. So I'm going to trust in Jesus and his testimony as opposed to these uh, German skeptic Bible haters and uh, all their man-made theories. All right, comfort will comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. All right, this is what we've got to start with. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to bless our time of studying his word today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together, the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, for the Hebrew canon, for the Greek canon, for the mind of Christ, for the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the Christian way of life and our stewardship, baptized in the union with Christ, walking in Christ. Father, we call upon your blessings once again on this day that as we study to show ourselves approved, Father, you are the one that approves. You are the one we stand before. Bless our time in your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with double comfort. Double comfort provided to Israel after the tribulation double discipline that the Lord administers to her. This is what we look at in these first two verses, these opening verses to the chapter. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ, has nothing to do with the church. And uh, this is a wonderful chapter to take people to if they're trying to convince you of some foolish things, like having the church go through the tribulation. Just uh, bring them here and start to define for them what the tribulation is. What is Israel? What is the church? Keep your terms and keep them distinct. And you begin to find that a lot of the confusion that otherwise rises can be sorted out in very short order. Why would I, as part of the body of Christ, be subject to the double compound discipline of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem for Jerusalem's sins, all right? God is dealing with Jerusalem. He's dealing with the Jewish people. The great tribulation of Israel, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. It is double discipline upon Israel, and then it is discipline upon the Gentile nations that are afflicting Israel. Different uh, aspects of it here. So, comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. My people, your God. Let's be very clear on this. Israel is the people of God, the covenant nation upon this earth, the covenant nation in the midst of all the Gentile nations around them. We are also a people of God, but we are a heavenly people, heavenly citizens. We don't have neighbors around us. All we have are unbelievers around us, all right, when it comes down to it. But Israel is the earthly nation, and that's who's in view in this passage Here, So speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended. The warfare ends on God's terms, not man's, all right? You want to visualize world peace and put a bumper sticker on your car, go ahead. But you're going to do so eschatologically with the truth that we will have peace on earth when Jesus Christ conquers Satan and the forces of Antichrist in Armageddon. Not until then. Anything before that is a pseudo-peace that that Satan offers uh, when destruction is on the way. 
The second advent of Jesus Christ is the only thing. It's not some kind of agreement with Secretary of State John Kerry, all right? It's not some kind of peace in our time with an agreement with the Iranians. Israel will have peace when Jesus Christ comes at second advent and conquers. It will be peace through military victory as we understand it in the scriptures. So the second advent of Jesus Christ is the only thing which will provide for Israel an end to their warfare. And by the way, this is not usually what's put on the bumper sticker. (laughs) Visualize world peace and visualize a removal of your iniquity. Okay, a removal of your iniquity. Both sides are in view here. And uh, this is extraordinary because this is not what Israel had in mind. This is not what the... uh, This is not what the uh, zealots were all about. The zealots were all about the removal of Rome and the establishment of the Davidic throne. But the idea of forgiveness of sins and removal of sins, when John the Baptist arises and starts to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that's not a popular message. The Jewish people didn't want to repent. They were okay. They were better than those nasty Gentiles after all. Let's just uh, destroy the Romans and bring in the kingdom. What's this repent stuff? What's this sin stuff? All right. They are not separable in the eschatology of the prophetic message to Israel. In order for Israel to enter into their kingdom, they must be brought under the bond of the covenant. They cannot be brought under the bond of the new covenant as in the sins without the blood of Jesus Christ applied. All right, so stay tuned. We're going to have some more detail on this here coming up. But simply notice it's not just an end of warfare in verse 2. It is the removal of her iniquity. You see that there in verse 2? Her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Why does she get double? Because she's accountable. She is the people that was given the scriptures. Great, what is the advantage of the Jews over the Gentiles? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? The accountability of the Jewish nation under the hand of God's discipline is such that she is subject to double discipline for her rebellion against the revealed word of God. That's what this is about. That's the tribulation. All right, that's the tribulation. And call me a rapture sissy all you want, but these, uh, these, these post-tribulational rapture heretics that are out there that are just saying, well, you, you only preach a pre-trib rapture because you're afraid of the tribulation. All right, it's ridiculous. You preach a post-trib rapture because you don't understand the difference between Israel and the church. Let's, let's get our thing straight. I'm not afraid of the tribulation anymore. I'm afraid of Noah's flood, okay? Noah's flood's over and done with. I'm not building an ark. I'm not gathering animals together. All right, and I'm not getting ready for the tribulation. Those are not my judgments. The tribulation is God's judgment upon Israel. The church had no part in the first 69 sevens. Why do we have a part in the 70th of the 70 septads that Daniel prophesied? So when you're trying to define these terms, understand what the tribulation is. What is the tribulation? It's not the tribulation of the church. We're not talking about tribulation in general or Jesus promised in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We're not talking about generic tribulations with a lowercase t. We're talking about the, capital letter, tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble. It has nothing to do with the church. It is the 77s that have been decreed for the Jews and for Jerusalem. The tribulation is the 70th of 70 septads decreed against the Jewish people and their holy city. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 9, you see this. And I think this is clear. The link between Isaiah 40 and Daniel 9 to Jerusalem, your people. All right, Daniel chapter 9. Notice, it's not the church in Daniel chapter 9. Let me get to Daniel here. I'm excited about Daniel because... Not only have I gone to Ukraine and taught it six different times, but I have a chance now to teach it to the teenagers starting tonight. uh, We wrapped up Genesis in our last teen class, and we're moving on to Daniel and Revelation uh, in uh, the next teen class. All right, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens, or it says weeks, but we know it's seven, a period of seven years. Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, the Lord is talking to Daniel here, so who are his people, and what's his holy city? Yeah, it's not doctrinal Bible churches in in the United States, all right? It is the Jews, and his holy city is Jerusalem. 
And this is the decree. Remember, he's all concerned about God's covenant promise to Israel. Daniel is pretty devastated. His prayer life is in a, is in a horrible place here in this chapter because he has lived through 70 years of captivity. He has lived through what God has promised, 70 years of captivity. And he knows that for God to be faithful to his promise, he has to bring Israel back to the land. But he also knows that 70 years later, they've not repented. 70 years later, the Jews are very happy and prosperous and living in Babylon, and they have very little interest in going back to Jerusalem. And he knows they have not repented of the sin that took him into captivity in the first place. And so he's wrestling with all these issues and he's praying and he's, he's confessing the sins of his people. And he's saying, Lord, we have not repented. And uh, even to this day. So when you read through the, the context there of chapter 9, that becomes clear. And God says, relax, Daniel, relax. I'm way ahead of you. I know the 70 years are over. Don't worry about the 70 years. Let me tell you about the 77s. All right, the 77s is the message that Daniel receives here. And that God has complete control over what he's doing. Seventy-sevens have been decreed. Notice, to finish the transgression. We've got the link here in terms of the transgression. This is what, another one of the connecting points between Isaiah 40 and verse 1 and uh, verse 2. And what we have here, to make atonement for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This is God's calendar to bring about the kingdom of Israel, what we call today the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But it's going to take 70 of these sevens to bring that about. And only 69 of those sevens have been finished as of now. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's verse 25 of Daniel 9, From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There is seven and then 62. That's 69. All right? There is one yet remaining. There is one yet remaining. It has not been brought about yet. Okay? We understand we're now in this pause. We're now in this gap, if you'd like. Some people don't like the language of gap. I'm okay with it. All right? Um... But here we have a break in between the 69th and the 70th seven. It's still future for us today. So uh, it says in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's the cross of Jesus Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Messiah was cut off and has nothing. There is no kingdom today. He is seated at the Father's right hand, waiting for the Father to give word for him to go and conquer, to bring in the kingdom through his own military victory. Presently now, he is cut off and has nothing. There is no Davidic inheritance presently manifest on this earth. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's also listed here in Daniel 9.26. This is now 37 years later in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. We just spanned 37 years in one verse. How about that? All right. And clearly... We're in between week 69 and week 70, right here in that verse. Its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. It's not until Daniel 9.27 that we have the 70th of those seven septads, those 70 septads, all right? Are you used to thinking in terms of decades? Quit thinking in terms of decades, right? Decades are just depressing, all right? Think in terms of septads, okay? I'm not going to go there. All right. Decades, like some of you, anyway. Uh, septads instead of decades. That's how God's operating here. In septads. And he decrees 70 of them. So a septad is a period of seven years instead of a decade, which is a period of 10 years. All right. Simple enough. And there are 70 of them. 69 of them were finished when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on Monday, March 30th, 33 AD. And he rode into Jerusalem humble, riding on a colt. And the children were singing Hosanna. And they laid out the palm branches. And they, they sung the Hosanna song, accepting their Messiah. It was Palm Monday that concluded those 69 sevens. But Messiah was cut off and had nothing. And we're still waiting for this prince who is to come. The coming prince is Antichrist. The coming prince will sign this covenant for the 70th, the final of these septads. So he will make a firm covenant with the many for one septad, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. 
this is going to be an even worse treaty than the one Carrie just made, right? This is going to be one that is going to be betrayed halfway through. All right, so there we have it. The tribulation is the 70th of 70 septads decreed against the Jewish people and their holy city. The church was not in existence when this decree was uttered. The church has no part in these 70 septads. We had no part in the first 69. We have no part in the 70th. You know, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, King James trouble, distress in the New American Standard Bible. It is the time of Jacob's distress, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. I'm not afraid of it. It's just not mine. All right? It's not mine. It is not my wrath. It is not my judgment. I am, uh, you know, God made promises to Israel to rescue them through that wrath. He made promises to the church that we have no part of that wrath. He delivers us from the wrath to come. We've got no part in it. It is unlike anything this world has ever seen or ever will see again. Unlike anything, it is a unique day. A one and only day. And I would encourage you, if you combine Ezekiel 5, 9 together with Daniel 12, 1, together with Matthew 24, 21, when the Bible talks about a unique day, that nothing like it has ever come before and nothing like it will ever come again. We're talking about a one and only day. And there can only be one, one and only. It's fundamental to thought. It's fundamental to logic. God himself is the I am. He is the only, one and only, self-existent, uncreated, uh, pure actuality being in existence. There cannot be two supreme beings. There can only, by definition, there is only one unique God, and there is only one uniquely born Son of God. Okay? There is only one unique day of wrath, and it's not for the church. The one unique day of wrath is for Israel. And time and time again, we see it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I know we're, we're trying to get to verse 31, right? <laughs> We've been waiting for 40 weeks now to get to verse 31. All right, we'll get there. Hope it's not a letdown by the time we get there, goodness. Ezekiel 5, 9. Notice, this is the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Jerusalem is the place of God's dwelling. Jerusalem is the place where he causes his name to dwell. And they defiled it. Jerusalem must receive double for all her sins. That's what the tribulation's about. Not the body of Christ, not the church age. And so, um, verse seven, therefore, you know, verse six, she has rebelled against my ordinances, acted more wickedly than the nations. Verse seven, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations. Verse eight, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you. Forget the nations that are lined up against you. God's the one who's against you. This is his hand at work. I will execute judgments among you in the sight of all the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. It is unique in the plan of God. Absolutely unique in the plan of God. Likewise, in Daniel 12:1, it is unique. It has never happened before. It will never happen again. It can never happen again. Because uh, God has other eternal promises. Daniel 12, 1 says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, he is the defender of the Jewish people, the defender of Israel. Michael will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be saved or will be rescued. This is the deliverance of Israel, believing Israel. Okay? You understand why it's, not, it's important not only for warfare to cease, but also for sins to be removed? Because it's the body of redeemed Israel going to be brought into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Likewise, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks to this. So Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jesus, the three great Old Testament prophets that spoke of this coming day. Remember, Jesus was an Old Testament prophet under the stewardship of Israel. And he prophesied of this coming day. He talks about the tribulation of those days and the sun is darkened and the moon does not give forth its light 
and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And notice how it is a unique day. It is a unique day. Verse 21 of this chapter. There will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And as it says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The capacity to destroy all humanity, all life on the planet is is a danger. But God says he steps in, he cuts it short, he limits the destruction that can take place. So don't worry about, you know, mankind destroying humanity. God puts a limit to the destruction that he permits. But for the sake of the elect, who's the elect? Not the body of Christ, not the church age, the elect nation of Israel. For Israel's sake, agreement with Ezekiel, agreement with Daniel. So this is the tribulation. I'm not afraid of it. Why would I be afraid of it? (laughs) All right. The herald precedes the king. We have verses 1 and 2 where Jerusalem is to be comforted, double comfort for the double discipline. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's why she receives the double comfort promise of comfort, O comfort, my people. Then verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for Yahweh, the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. There is a herald that precedes the coming of the Christ. There is the herald that cries forth that the King is coming. Prophesied in Isaiah 40. Prophesied also in Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. A forerunner will precede the coming of the King. There are lots of prophets that are going to announce the coming of the Christ, but a herald will announce the coming of the King. That's what makes John the Baptist the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets and the herald of the first advent of Jesus Christ. Let every valley be lifted up and every hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I believe second advent is going to be globally visible. It's going to be public. Everyone's going to be aware of it. Rapture, not so much. Rapture is the coming of the bride, the gathering of us out. We meet the Lord in the air. He takes us back to heaven. It is not globally observed, but second advent will be globally observed. All flesh will see it together. And so a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? (laughs) What do I need to announce? All flesh is grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What's this about? This is not just a generic uh, exaltation of Bible study. What's this all about? What is the promise of the living word of God that is the proclamation of the herald in the presence of the coming king? That's what it's about. All flesh is grass, but guess what? We're redeemed, we're glorified, we're going to enter into this kingdom of glory. Oh, it's an exciting message. Well, the herald precedes the king. They didn't like it when he came in first advent. John the Baptist... John the Baptist fulfilled this role in the first advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus testifies to this. The gospel record testifies to this. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 11. Elijah is going to fulfill this role in the second advent of Jesus Christ. See, it's not only Isaiah 40 where this is cited. We also have Malachi, Malachi 3, Malachi 4. Additional prophets in the Old Testament that speak of Elijah coming. Elijah is not in this chapter. Isaiah 40 just says... uh, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. It doesn't say who that herald is. In Malachi 3, we find out that my messenger is being sent. And in Malachi 4, we find out that my messenger is going to be Elijah returning to this earth. Malachi. Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls him Malachi. Calls him the great Italian prophet, Malachi. But that's just Arnold being being Arnold, being funny. All right. But in Malachi, there's a play on words here because Malachi means my messenger. And he says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send. And so he picks a prophet named Malachi to write about Malachi, to write about my messenger. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Same language from Isaiah 40. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? In fact, it's going to be, it's going to be preceded by judgment. The fuller's fire, the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. He sits as a smelter. Tribulation has to precede the second advent of Jesus Christ. You want to try to visualize world peace and, and do so without Armageddon, without the tribulation? You're violating all of Scripture at that point. We, don't have, uh, we have Malachi, we have my messenger, not named until chapter 4. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, in the final verses of the Old Testament, right? At least in the order of our canon. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why is it to this day they, they, they set a place setting at the table for Elijah, right? Why is it this day every time they have a, a Passover and they set that, they're waiting for Elijah. They're looking out their windows, Elijah coming. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. There's going to be a spiritual revival on the part of the Jewish people so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Isn't that great? The last word of the Old Testament is curse. (laughs) Okay? So flip the page and get some grace in the New Testament, right? Read about the birth of Messiah and what follows. So John the Baptist fulfilled this role in the first advent of Jesus Christ. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, the, the, the same conundrum Daniel had. Lord, we're supposed to go back to Jerusalem and we're still a bunch of idolaters. We're, we're horribly uh, rebellious against you. It's the same conundrum that Daniel had now in, in, in uh, John the Baptist's day. The, the, the Messiah is about to be born and we are not ready for us to the spiritual kingdom of, of the Messiah. They were, they were all political. They were all happy to be done with Rome. But the idea that we have to repent, the idea that we have to uh, have our sins forgiven, most of the Jewish people wanted no part of that. In fact, most were living in total denial. The Pharisees were convinced they were the kingdom. Yeah, we're, we're a bunch of holy guys. We're good. You know, the rich young ruler said, I've done everything imaginable. I, I've earned eternal life. I tell you, first century Judaism was not ready for Messiah. And that's why the role of the baptizer was so important. That's why the role of Jesus Christ and his disciples was so confrontational in that day and age. Well, we've got uh, Matthew chapter 3. A couple of items here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, okay? So it's not just Pastor Bob's opinion. The Holy Spirit inspired this and proved that John the Baptist was fulfilling the Isaiah 40 prophecy in his day and age. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. All right? This is the verse my first sergeant used when he snapped me out of a moment of carnality during Desert Storm. I don't even remember the circumstances. We were in the desert driving somewhere in Saudi Arabia, and, and I, had a, I was having a bad day in carnality and whatever, mad at whatever, I don't know. Isn't that great? I can't even remember the circumstance. It doesn't matter anyway. But I was complaining verbally about some rotten thing, whatever it was. And my first sergeant, a great believer that he was and an older brother in Christ, um, he just kind of quietly looked up to the skies and said, behold, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. (laughs) Okay. I got it. Well, First John one nine activity. We get back in fellowship and uh, restore whatever needs to be done there. All right. And so this is it. And this is describing John and his ministry to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Chapter eleven. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, Matthew chapter eleven and verse fourteen. Jesus has the opportunity to testify with regard to John. 
and talking to the crowds about John, starting in verse 7. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You know, he shows up and you're all excited for a little while. Hey, here's the latest exciting thing. You know, here's this crazy guy dressed in camel's uh, skins and and, you know, they went out to see this guy. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't in the rabbinic schools. He wasn't in the temple. You actually had to go out to the, the River Jordan and see this guy. And what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. You know, unusual messenger here for the coming king. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Okay? So not just your crazy Pastor Bob that's linking Isaiah 40 with Malachi chapter 3. Jesus does that. Then he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that something? Right? Raise your hand if your mom was a woman. Right? John the Baptist was the greatest of those born among women. That is the pinnacle of Old Testament, uh, not Christianity, Old Testament Moseyanity, all right, which we learned about last hour. Now, but he says, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest Old Testament saint. He says, the, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Okay? That means in the what-if parallel universes of, of all the possible timelines, had Israel repented and accepted their king, then Elijah, then uh, John the Baptist would have fulfilled the totality of that expected Elijah role, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. However, they did not care to accept it. John the Baptist is not Elijah who is to come. Elijah is still coming. And that will be very clear as well when the disciples ask, Lord, we, we heard Elijah is coming. Well, Elijah is coming. Elijah is coming. That's Matthew 17, by the way. Matthew, well, I'm in Matthew. Let me grab that before I go back to Isaiah. Promise, we're going to have eagle's wings today. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 is the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John got a chance to see a transfigured Christ and a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. And they come down off the mountain and Jesus said, tell the vision to no one. Don't preach this until... The Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him in verse 10, and said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He, he answered and said, Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay? So there it is. Put those all together. Combine Matthew 3 with Matthew 11 with Matthew 17. Put it together with Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, and I think you've got a great picture there. For the kingdom offered to Israel, which they could have accepted, but they rejected. All right? They chopped off the head of the herald and they put the king on the cross. And so we have the reality for what it is. All right. Now back to the glory, the mouth, and the breath. God in Trinity. Verses 5 through 8 of Isaiah 40. And man, I wish I could take a whole Sunday just to teach this verse. God in Trinity will be revealed at the second advent of Jesus Christ. God in Trinity will be revealed as the glory, mouth, and breath of Yahweh. The glory, the mouth, and the breath. Okay, breath is spirit, mouth is Christ, glory is God the Father. Remember, we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When He came in first advent, He laid aside His glory. He revealed the glory of the Father in His first advent. When second advent, it will be the glory, the mouth, and the breath of Yahweh that is revealed here. Verse 5 says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is the role of Jesus Christ but to take us to the Father? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ came to teach the things of the Father. In first advent, he's going to do the same thing in second advent. He's going to teach the things of the Father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? 
Now we get the breath of the Lord in verse 7. So we have glory, mouth, and breath, all of which are attached to Yahweh in this context. All flesh is grass. Its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Do you know what happens in the Great Tribulation to the vegetation on this planet? <laughs> okay, There is so many. With the, between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we find destruction again and again and again. And humanity realizes what an endangered species we truly are. All right, for those who manage to survive the tribulation, to stand before the uh, sheep and goat judgment or to stand before the wilderness judgment of Israel, most of humanity will not survive the tribulation. That's, uh, that's just what it is. The grass withers, the flower fades, but Jesus Christ, the word of our God, stands forever. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what Israel has to look forward to. Israel will become the prime evangelist. Zion becomes the one who uh, begins to announce good things. Zion is the evangelist with the beautiful feet. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Bearer of good news. The role of the 144,000, the role of the Jewish people in proclaiming the only salvation in the world of the tribulation. Get yourself up on a high mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, right? Dispensationally problematic when we sing it in the church age, but I get it, all right? We want to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We want to proclaim the gospel to all creation. Again, dispensationally problematic. But we can be, we can be evangelists in our stewardship. We're commanded to be evangelists in our stewardship. But let's not steal the prophecies of Israel that will be fulfilled by Israel in the Great Tribulation. That's what these passages are dealing with. And the neat thing about it is the God who's going to save them is the God who made them. Do you have any fear about the Lord? (laughs) Do you think that He's not able to hear you? Do you think that somehow I've got all these problems and God is clueless? I've got all these things and he, he He doesn't even know I'm going through it. He doesn't know I'm suffering in these things. No, He knows. He knows and He designed it all. He's bringing about a unique day of maximum wrath, of maximum judgment, so that He brings about the true repentance for the nation of Israel. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is creator of heaven and earth, and that's who's going to save them. And so we've got a a passage here from 9 through 26. 9 through 26, and this is where we can save a lot of time because um, if I allow myself to get lost here, we'll be here six months from now. There is just so much. We got The nations are like a drop from the bucket in verse 15. <laughs> wow, drop of the bucket. That's a, that's a biblical expression right there. Regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. You know, we, get, we blow so many things out of proportion. We think, oh my goodness, the course of human history. Drop in the bucket. It's a speck on the scales. It is insignificant to the weight measurement of what God's doing on an eternal scale. All right, well, the paradox of might and gentleness. Here's a fun message. Teach verses 9 through 11 sometimes. And you get the paradox of might with gentleness the very Lord and Savior, Creator and Savior that's bringing reward and recompense. Let's look at verses 9, 10, and 11 here. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Evangelism is going to be pretty pointed in the tribulation when you can, you're, they're marking off their calendar to the, to the coming of the Christ. Behold, the Lord God, this is Adonai Yahweh, will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. His recompense is before Him. I love this. Reward and recompense. Reward is with Him. That is, you'll get it when he arrives. But recompense is before him. It actually precedes him. Recompense precedes him. Wrath precedes him. That's recompense. Judgment. Double for all your sins. Then 
reward. Reward is with him, okay? We have a New Testament application for this in 1 Peter chapter 5. For pastors, pastors are commanded to faithfully shepherd their flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily according to the will of God. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, right? Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over them, but proving to be examples to the flock. You know the passage I'm talking about? I'm not going to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. And it says, this talking to the pastors now, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If, if the pastor is in it for some kind of an earthly recompense, he's sadly misguided. The reward from the chief shepherd occurs when the chief shepherd appears. Nothing is promised prior to that. Likewise here, his reward is with him. You want reward now? No, reward is with him. Recompense goes before him, as it says there. So behold, his reward is with him, recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Not a conquering, you know, a shepherd. Notice this. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing the ewes, okay? The nursing ewes. So he's got the lambs and he's got the nursing ewes that are nursing those lambs. We have might with gentleness. That might view, we might think of that as a paradox. We might think of, of if something is mighty, how can it be gentle? <laughs> and if something is gentle, how can it be mighty, right? If it's gentle, well, then it's a pushover or it's, it's not tough or it's not mighty. Both mighty and gentle is the person of our Savior. He is the lion and the lamb. Both. Is that a paradox? They're both Christ, the lion and the lamb. Anyway, there's a fun thing to consider. Understand the physical realm of humanity, the spiritual realm of angelity, they have no comparison to the creator of heaven and earth. Who is like me? Who is like me? And whether you're talking about the physical realm of humanity or the spiritual realm of angelity, anybody that stands up and vows, I will be like the Most High God, is a liar and the father of lies. Okay? We already dealt with Isaiah 14 and the fall of Satan. We dealt with Isaiah 14 and the pride of Hillel ben Shachar, who stood before the Lord God Almighty and said, I will be like the Most High God. Not only this chapter, by the way, it's going to come up again and again and again through these chapters here in the early 40s of Isaiah, 43, 44, 45. These early chapters in the low 40s of Isaiah, time and time again, who is like me, declares the Lord, (laughs) rhetorically, but nailing Satan to the wall. You're not like me. You've never been like me. You'll never be like me. There is none like me. He is the one and only. All right. Well, I'm going to have to pass by this. You know, to whom will you liken God in verse 18? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. In other words, if you really want a man-made God, all you're going to end up with is the best that you can afford. <laughs> okay? And maybe, maybe, all right, maybe you, can, maybe you can afford a golden God. Good for you. Maybe all you can afford is a silver god. Okay, well, go with that. Or maybe you're too impoverished for either gold or silver. Well, then pick out a tree. Select a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman. Get the best carver you can, because at the end of the day, you're still going to be left with a man-made god. And maybe he's more skilled than you at crafting this thing to look real pretty, but it's still man-made when it's all said and done. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. (laughs) Wow, I'm impressed. You've got a God that doesn't fall over. Okay, see, I would require a skillful craftsman because anything I, if I tried to fashion with wood or whatever, it would totter. All right. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Isn't this great? (laughs) So we got the physical realm of humanity, the spiritual realm of angelity. Uh, When you get to the heavens, God makes even the angels like grasshoppers in his sight. And um, the rulers and the judges there, that's in the angelic realm. 
We've got angelity here in, uh, in these verses. The one, uh, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars in verse 26. The one who leads forth their hosts by number, calls them all by name. He counts the hairs on your head, but he knows every star in the universe and every one of them has a name. God has named those stars like Adam named the animals. All right, not one of them is missing. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Injustice do me escapes the notice of my God. Here is human viewpoint every time we get pouty, every time we get to where we're, you know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and we start to pout, and we start to get, oh, boo-hoo, woe is us. God doesn't see my problems, and maybe he sees it, but he doesn't care. Or he's so brutally unfair, he's letting me suffer unjustly. I don't get the justice I deserve. The justice due me. It's due to me. God owes me. You see how dark this gets? You see how how vile this becomes when you're saturated by human viewpoint? Justice is due you. Hello? Are you the absolute standard of righteousness in this universe? Justice is due God and God himself. God is the eternal standard of righteousness and justice. The only thing do you is like a fire. Let's quit with what we've earned and deserved. Let's embrace the grace of our salvation. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Okay, so if you're going to throw your pity party, just stop right now. Stop right now. Israel as a nation or you and your marriage or you and your family or whatever, you and your church, God is well aware of what's going on because he designed it. He designed your test and he designed the ekbasis to that test. Don't you dare say he's clueless as to what's going on. You're the clueless one. I'm the clueless one. God knows what he's doing. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God? The everlasting God. This is, this is why we can claim faith rest. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. This answers every objection we might possibly have to why our prayers aren't being answered. See, some folks might say, well, he knows about it, but there's nothing he can do about it. He's just not able to solve my problems because I've got these great big problems. I've got a little tiny God in the maladjustment of my faith perspective. No, I need to reorient to divine viewpoint. I've got a great big God and my problems are a drop in the bucket, a speck on the scale such a tiny speck, it doesn't impact the weight of that scale remotely. All right? Do you not know, have you not heard? This is why faith rest is so powerful. The everlasting God. <laughs> you know, when my problems are long gone, God's still here. When my problems are long gone, I'm still here. I have eternal life. I'm eternal. My problems are not He's the Lord. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not become weary or tired. The biggest issue is I'm just tired. The problem with my faith, I mean, I did okay last week. I did okay yesterday. I did okay. But man, this test has just lingered and lingered and lingered. And finally, I've just, I've I've had it. I've had enough. I'm tired. I'm done. I reached, you know, I'm up to here. And then, well, guess what? God doesn't have a here. Okay? We get tired of our testing. God does not get tired of anything, of our testing or anything else. So if we find that our prayer life has diminished because of our tiredness, let's uh, remind ourselves of who's not getting tired in this, in this situation. God's not getting tired in this situation. He doesn't get tired. Not only does he not get tired, but he knows what he's doing. His understanding is inscrutable. If you're looking at the thing and you think that you know better than God does, then you're scrutinizing the one who's inscrutable. And who do I think I am when he's had this figured out since before the foundation of the world? Not only is he tireless, he enables me to share in his tirelessness. He gives strength to the weary. I'm not wrong for getting tired. I'm wrong for not going to him when I am tired and getting the strength that he's waiting to provide. 
He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. But how do I get that power? How do I get that might? How do I get that wisdom? Let who, you who lack wisdom ask of God. He gives to all generously and without reproach. Though youths grow weary and tired. See, it's not everybody gets tired. Vigorous young men stumble badly. And okay, maybe the younger guys have more endurance than the older guys. It doesn't matter. We're all human. We're all going to reach the point where we're done. We're tired. No matter how vigorous you are, no matter how youthful you are, it's still a finite scale of relative strength. Let's embrace the infinite scale of divine strength. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Understand the metaphor here. It's not, uh, we're not going to get superpowers and learn how to fly, all right? They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why are we, why are we running first and then walking? Well, because what we have here is this pattern of old age, right? We have the pattern here of mounting up. Um, you know, like a toddler who first is able to stand up. Okay? And then once he's able to stand, then he learns how to walk, then he learns how to run, and then you reach a certain age and you're not running anymore. Okay, Have you reached that age yet? You reach an age and you're not running anymore. Okay, I quit running when the angry men in the brown hats quit yelling at me. Okay, when the <laughs> Drill sergeants would yell at you and make you run and, and okay, I'll run, but as soon as the angry men in the brown hats were done yelling at me, I, I stopped running. And, uh, but you go from running, you go to walking, but even in the older years of physical life, God is still faithful. His strength is available. His power is there. Grace is sufficient. The outer man perishes, but the inner man is renewed day by day. But we need to have his perspective. We need to learn what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? Okay. First of all, it's not doubt in our prayers. A prayer life of doubt is insulting to the one with whom we have to do. The prayer life of doubt is insulting. If you're going to boo-hoo and say, well, he doesn't see what I'm going through. He doesn't know my problems. He doesn't hear me. I'm not getting the justice I deserve. Prayer doesn't work. All right? Then I am in this assertion of uh, verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Or like James chapter 1, I'm going to ask doubting. I'm going to ask without faith. You know how insulting that is? It's like uh, Michael Dell's son asking his dad for 20 bucks, okay? Or, uh, you know, Bill Gates' son or whatever. If your father is a billionaire and you ask him for 20 bucks and you are somewhat doubtful that he can uh, afford it, or that he's got it, or that he wants to give it to you, or that he can give it to you? How insulting is that? And when you go to the creator God of the universe with a doubtful prayer that says, well, you probably don't even care anyway, or you don't even know, or you're not even, you, God, you can't solve my problem. Well, then the book of James says, James 1, 6 through 8, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, and don't expect to get any of your prayers answered at all. Because God can answer a prayer. He's choosing not to answer your prayer with your lack of faith. You must ask believing. And we have uh, the pattern there, all right? Faith rest. See, God does not suffer from the weaknesses of finite human limitations. Not only does He not suffer from it, He shares that immunity, that invulnerability with us when we ask Him for it, when we obtain it. His strength and His power are supplied to His children as a present blessing. I can utilize it here in time. It's a present blessing. For those with a divine viewpoint perspective of hopeful waiting. The divine viewpoint perspective of hopeful waiting. This is the essence of the faith rest doctrine, the faith rest drill. I am claiming the promises. I am waiting upon the Lord. The Greek is elpizo. The Hebrew um, is escaping me at the moment. All right? In this verse. With those who wait upon the Lord. All right? And we are waiting expectantly. We are waiting with a positive anticipation. 
We are not waiting in a, in a stomp our feet, why are you taking so long kind of way, all right? We are waiting in a joyous anticipation, knowing that because he has delayed in his wisdom right now is too soon. And so I'm going to keep waiting. And I'm going to keep waiting with all the hope, with all the joy, with all the positive anticipation that in the fullness of his wisdom, he is going to provide. So his strength and his power are supplied to his children as a present blessing. Verses 29 through 31. He gives. He increases. He supplies. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Just raise your hand and say, that's me, Lord, I need it. Strengthen me. Empower me. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. In fact, it's a strength you cannot have without waiting for Him, without walking by faith. Then, you see, you know, it's like any muscle. Are you going to strengthen that muscle without using it? When are you going to receive this new strength? By waiting for the Lord. This is how your strength is, is your faith is strengthened as you exercise your faith. Psalm 18, 29, Psalm 31, 24, Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Quit trying to be strong in your own might. Isaiah, no, no, I'm sorry, Psalm 18. David employed this. David knew where his strength came from. He says, for by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. I think this was not only spiritual strength in David's case, I think he was like Samson, like the mighty men of old, the prophets and uh, spirit-indwelt judges of the Old Testament. How strengthened was he when he went toe-to-toe with Goliath? How many walls uh, did David jump over? Psalm 31-24. See, I think it's a doctrinal reality, and in David's case, the metaphor was also literal. Psalm 31, 24, be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. It says in verse 23, O love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. You want to be strong? Trust in God. Walk by faith. That's where your strength is going to come from. Ephesians 6, 10. That's our armor of God passage. The divine viewpoint of hopeful waiting. The perspective of watching to see God's deliverance. To watch and see. To not be fearful of the test, but to be awestruck by how faithful God is. Don't boo-hoo over the, the test you don't see an answer to. Celebrate. Go, wow, my God's an awesome God who has a solution to this test. <laughs> okay? That's the faith rest life. Look these up on your own because I'm out of time. It's Psalm 25, verse 3, verse 5, verse 21. Psalm 27, verse 14. Psalm 40 in verse 1. Psalm 69 in verse 6. Psalm 130 in verse 5. Look at the most depressing book of the Bible, Lamentations, and see the greatest encouragement in chapter 3 about great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, and see that with hopeful waiting God will provide. Lamentations 3, verse 25, say you got your only begotten son strapped to an altar and a knife in your hand and you don't think there's an answer to this, but God will provide. He is faithful to provide. Lamentations 3.25. How about Romans 8.25? We hope. We are born again to a living hope in which we stand. In the New Testament, we've got a hope beyond anything the Old Testament believers ever dreamed of. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We are saved, delivered. We no longer serve those dead idols, but we serve a living God and we wait for our Savior to come, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. We have a very present perspective. Strength and power supply to his children as a present blessing for those with a divine viewpoint perspective of hopeful waiting. So have you had it up to here? Are you done? You said, Lord, I just can't do anymore. Get rid of that. Can't is the language of losers, of unbelievers. We are, in Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's this can't? That's not our vocabulary. All right, go to him for his strength. Apply his promises. And we see it for what it is. And then you'll mount up with, a, with wings like eagles. 
Then you'll run and not get weary. All right? Not get tired. Walk and not become weary. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Isaiah 40. I thank you for the perspective, Father, that Israel is Israel, the church is the church. We want to rightly divide and distinguish between the purpose you have for your earthly covenant people and the purpose you have for your heavenly people. Father, I pray that we might not lose track of these distinctions, that we can uh, hold forth and rightly divide the word of truth for our own personal applications and our own corporate applications. Father, um, there is so much confusion out there in theology and in, in churches by and large that are so blurring these lines, these blurred lines between Israel and the church. I pray, Father, you will help us to maintain the clear distinctions that you yourself maintain, that your your son maintained when he read a verse and a third of another verse and stopped. And he rolled up the scroll and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to imitate our Savior that we would emulate his hermeneutic, that we would emulate the reverence he holds to the scriptures. Father, it's just sad in my mind how many people profess Christ, but by their deeds they deny him. They profess to be born again, but they have such a low regard for the truth of your word. It's, it's like it's just, they dismiss it. They, they place their own, their own preferences over the revealed truth. And I ask, Father, that we would never, ever be so arrogant as to lie against the truth that we would be humble before the authority of your word day by day and moment by moment. Now, Father, continue to bless and continue to provide. Open our eyes to your promises. Open our eyes to how faithful you are. And when our problems get bigger, Father, open our eyes to how big you are and how small these problems really are so that we can walk by faith and not by sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.